listeners to the BHL podcast series. I'm your host, Scott Heidner, and we are here today in the beautiful home of Kansas Senate President Susan Wagle in Wichita, Kansas, here in late April. Uh, Senator, thanks for making time to join the BHL podcast. Well, this sounds like it's going to be just a little bit of fun, and, and I'm going to enjoy <laughs> sending this podcast out to my friends and my family. That's awesome. It is fun. We will have a good time, and we'll uh, we'll tell some of our favorite stories from our years working together, but not all of them. So. That's for sure. <laughs> we'll appreciate you making time to do this, and a lot of our listeners will be familiar with you, but not all of them. So um, we have a lot of listeners in Kansas, but other states and stuff, too. So take us all the way back to the beginning. Uh, are you a native Kansas? Did you grow up here? No, I was actually born in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Oh, you're kidding. Not kidding. Uh, there was a, We have another senator that was born there, too, don't we? Or is it just you? Maybe I'm thinking you know, of somebody I, else. I meet a lot of people from the state of Pennsylvania, but I mm-hmm. don't recall any legislators yeah, from well, Allentown. I'm, but guess, I'm guessing you would know mm-hmm. if there were. So, just like the Billy Joel song, uh, which I'm <laughs> sure my is favorites. what everybody says. It is. My uh, dad uh, was very interested growing up in radios and televisions, and he finally went to computer training with a company named Burroughs, who uh, said, we're going to train you and send you to some location in the United States uh, where we have a computer system. And so after his training, he wanted to come to Wichita because our aircraft companies at the time had Burroughs equipment. And so when I was four years old, we moved to Wichita. I'll be darned. So probably not a lot of memories of Allentown? No, we went back uh, every other year to see family. And I still go back there. And uh, but So I have very good memories of, of my family. We, we missed them terribly, yeah. but we stayed connected. Very cool. So grew up in Wichita, mm-hmm. went to school here, mm-hmm. uh, normal childhood or anything exceptional? Did you? I was the second born of six children. Mm-hmm. So we had a big family, a lot of fun, and I had a very happy childhood. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I had family in Wichita, so I spent a lot of time growing up down here, even though I grew up up in Barryton. Mm-hmm. Spent a lot of time down in Wichita during that same time you were here raising a family. Well, what uh, so what was the flight path here, high school, then took off to? Went to Wichita Public Schools. Mm-hmm. Um, upon graduation, I took some classes at Wichita State University. Uh, I was paying my own way. We had a lot of kids in our family, so all of us uh, paid our own way through college. I was married at a young age. I was married at 19, and then the focus was to have my husband finish college. Um, Unfortunately, divorced at age 21. So then uh, I put myself through school, uh, got a degree in elementary education, and I met my husband, my current husband, at at the College of Education at WSU. Uh, He was going to school to be an elementary education teacher also. So uh, we both finished our degrees, and... uh, My husband always said, there's one great thing about teaching, Susan. And I'd say, what's that? And he'd say, "Uh, holidays, weekends, June, July, and August. (laughs) Because he, at the time, was buying real estate and fixing it up himself. And he felt like he could do something he enjoyed, being around students and young people and helping them 
learn things and and have a better track for a better life but at the same time uh he could build uh holdings in real estate which mm-hmm. is what he did so he, he over the years bought a lot of real estate and uh, i only taught for three years and he taught for 10 after which the time came where we had to leave teaching and and run our real estate business mm-hmm. so um what came first the switch to real estate or family i, I, I say first not priorities i mean chronologically uh they were entwined uh-huh. happened at the same time we had children he had three children when i married him and uh then we uh had julia our oldest daughter so we did the real estate thing with children uh we're we're workers you know he didn't mind when the phone rang on a weekend and he needed to go fix something or um we have a strong work ethic mm-hmm so uh, we've owned a number of businesses over the years, and we still own real estate, commercial and residential, and it's been good to us. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, inflation <laughs> always happens, and so if you buy and hold and make it profitable during that interim, uh, it's a way to make a good living. Yeah. So that uh, answering the phone and being available on the weekend, that's not really uh, optional when you own the business, is it, it? It's not for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. But uh, he felt like it was a way to increase wealth. And when he started investing, I mean, interest rates were 18% on a house. And so the real estate market here and around the country was totally stagnant. And people would say to him, you know, if you would take this house on my hands, I'll finance it for less of an interest rate. Because that was about the only way you could sell houses. And he knew a number of people who were in real estate. And he bought a lot of homes that way Mm -hmm. at the very beginning. So Mm -hmm. um, it's been good to us. And he is 70 years old, and he's not going to quit working. He (laughs) enjoys working. Yeah. So. Well, they say, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life, right? That's right. Uh, You and I have never talked about this, but uh, I've got a few rental properties, too, and started that all at the end of the recession. Just just as you guys took advantage of the crisis and the high interest rates and everything, um, you know, at the end of the recession, uh, prices were so low, mm-hmm. uh, deflated, and, and interest rates were so low. I mean, it's... It was time to buy. Yeah. yeah. And there's seasons to buy. Mm-hmm. And there's seasons to sell. That's you right. just have to learn. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's an interesting business. It mm-hmm. really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you, yeah. If you've got your brain on all the time, you can learn a lot. Really do. And if you're willing to work a few mm-hmm. extra hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, anybody can gain tremendous wealth playing that market if, mm-hmm. they're, if they're willing to, you know, wake up in the middle of the night if there's a problem. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's the non-glorious part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, give me the short version then. So um, seven kids between the two of you, and you were mm-hmm. in Wichita the whole time, raised your family here. Raised the family here. Um, we have an interesting story that's very unique to our family. We're very close. Um, as you can tell here in my house, it's very children-oriented. Yeah. I know we, as, as of today, <laughs> we have 15 grandkids, and we love being together. Uh, but we had a unique challenge in the late 80s when Thomas' boys were coming to live with us. Uh, we were adding on a bedroom to our house, and 
we found termites during construction, so we called the the pesticide uh, pesticide guy. He came over, and um, he was going to put a chemical underneath our house, which was a chemical barrier that would prevent the termites from coming up through the ground into the house. And as it turned out, um, after he applied that chemical, the house stunk to high heaven, and we called him back, and we said, we think you put that in our air vents. We were in a slab house, and the air vents were running against the walls, and he denied it and denied it. And we thought, my goodness, he misapplied this chemical. And we didn't know where to turn because the house stunk. We had all the windows open. And someone said, call the Department of Agriculture because they regulate pesticides. We called the Department of Agriculture. And two weeks after that happened, they made us vacate the house. They said it was toxic. Um, And the chemical that was used at the time was a chemical called chlordane, which was banned the next year by the federal government. So we had a very toxic exposure to a chemical called chlordane. Um, and the applicant said, the, the guy who, who tried to prevent our house from uh, the termite problem, he kept denying it. We had to move in with my sister, and I'll never forget, I wished I would have had a camera phone. Tom and I drove past our house uh, after leaving it, and the house was roped off with yellow tape, and there were people walking in and out with these uh, hazmat y- suits. Yes, yes, oh and air gosh. masks, and they were trying to clean out the house of the chemical. So um, it took us nine months to get back into the house. Oh my gosh! So you and all seven kids? Well, went to your but at that time we had uh, Tom's. We we had four living okay. in the house. Still. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah, and my sister was awful kind to let us live there, <laughs> and uh, and uh, they couldn't get rid of the chemical. It, it's, it went into the walls, it went to the ceiling, they had to rip out the carpet. They just couldn't get the chemical levels out of the house, and finally they were successful, and we ended up going to court, and at the time, we couldn't even find an attorney in Wichita that would take a, a toxic chemical case, because attorneys were used to doing wills, they were used to doing... Uh, residential property contracts that you know this was before the time that attorneys uh, could take on toxic chemicals and and the uh, conflicts and and problems that come along with overexposure so anyway as it turns out over time um, I was diagnosed with a blood cancer in 95 Uh, my son a few years later got leukemia and then another son just got non-Hodgkin's my daughter got multiple myeloma and we have doctors all over the nation that say um, we've never had four blood cancers in one family oh my gosh highly unusual and uh, of course there's no blood cancer in my history or my husband's history so um, I often think that that pesticide exposure had a genetic effect on my family and certainly uh, we have some top genetics researchers who are looking at our genetics to try and find a way um, to help solve the problem of blood cancers. Mm -hmm. What can we do? Uh, How how is my family genetics different than someone else's genetics? And uh, hopefully we're going to help find a cure. But as a result of all those trials with my son going through leukemia, then relapsing and going to transplant, and a daughter who's battling it right now, and a son who 
battled it last year. Um, we're a very close family. Uh, we appreciate our time together, and uh, we stand there for each other. Yeah. When one person's having a problem, we all close in and help them out. So that's a that's a lot of of. Uh, that's a tough thing to pull a silver lining out of, but that is the silver lining is it does, it does bond you. No oh doubt. my goodness. We're very close. And so every holiday is very special to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, certainly when one person's going through a challenge, we're all there helping out. And, um, we're hoping that the research they're doing on my family helps find a cure in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a happy thought. Mm-hmm. I hope it does too. Mm-hmm. Well, in spite of all of that, never, never let it uh, uh, taint your experience as a longtime Wichita resident. And eventually, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, Susan, but eventually uh, felt the pull of public office and and getting involved. Uh, what was the what was the genesis of that? What did you run for first, or when did you first take interest? I first ran in 1990. Tom and I were buying real estate. And the legislature changed the way they taxed property. Mm-hmm. And property taxes across the state of Kansas were increased significantly, especially on commercial property. By then, we also had commercial property. And if you were used to paying 5000 a year on that property, on property taxes, oftentimes it went up, you know, it, it, it more than doubled. And so if you're a small business owner, you know, moving a property tax payment from five to 10000 was was a tremendous hardship. So we had a property tax rebellion going on in the state of Kansas. Mike Hayden was governor, and I was from Wichita, and uh, there was a, a real estate investor, um, and he, he, he also owned a, a real estate company, Nestor Wygand, said he was going to run against Mike Hayden because of this tremendous burden we were all under. And I was living in what happened to be a newly districted seat, And several people asked me to run, and I said, no way, I'll find somebody, I know it's important. And then when I go out and talk to business leaders and say, hey, why don't you run for this seat? They'd ask me what the time commitment was and the salary, and it's essentially a three-month time commitment, but the salary back then was about 7,000 a year, and they'd all say, I can't afford this. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't find any way to run. So um, my husband finally just said, Susan, you'd be a good legislator, you need to run. So... um, I ran against uh, a well-funded lady who was recruited by uh, my house leadership, who was very moderate, and her brochures said property taxes are a fact of life. They're not too high. (laughs) And my brochure said they're way too hard, high. We can't uh, afford what the legislature just did. It's it's hurting people's budgets. Mm -hmm. And of course, I won. But... That election was quite an election cycle because for the second time in Kansas history, uh, a lot of Republican incumbents who voted to increase property taxes were all thrown out, including the Republican governor was thrown out, Mike Hayden was thrown out of office, Joan Finney was elected, and the House went Democrat. Mm -hmm. So I'm one of the few people in the legislature who has served in the minority party and the majority party, and there's there's a big difference between being on the team that can help guide the process and then being the underdog. Mm-hmm. So um, that was quite a significant term, and 
Republicans started to learn their lesson. Yeah, I remember hearing Bob Dole say in his time in uh, in Washington, D.C., that you always wanted to govern in the majority, but in a lot of ways it was easier to lead in the minority party. Uh, I always thought that was a curious All you have to do is throw bombs. Yep. You don't have to pass any legislation. <laughs> All well, you do is, th- is point out the deficiencies of the opposing side. Right. Well, you're... Uh, it's amazing how consistent it is with elected officials that there is so often an event or an issue that pulled them into office. Uh, your story is a little different in that most legislators start off with some sort of local office, and you mm-hmm. went straight into the straight into the the hornet's nest there. So got elected into the house in '91. Correct. And tell us about your time in the house. Uh, Do you end up being in a committee chair leadership position because you and I actually started working together after you had moved to the Senate. This is our 17th session together. So I, I never knew the the house version of Susan Wagle. Oh, the house version. Well, I realized that I was in the minority, uh, the minority, the minority. First of all, I was a conservative, a fiscal conservative, and I was pro-life. And, uh, secondly, I was in the minority party. So, that first election, I thought I need to help recruit conservatives and get conservatives elected. And certainly we did that and we took back the majority the next election, two years later. And then by the 94 election, uh, I really helped turn Sedgwick County in that I helped elect a, a large number of conservatives to seats. And so then I in turn was then elected into leadership. So I was the first female speaker pro tem in 94. Uh, I was re-elected in 96 and ran for speaker in 98. And uh, I remember working very hard on that election, and I decided I don't want to cut any deals. I don't want to offer anybody a chairmanship. I just want to be able to govern and help create a house by putting the right people in leadership and the right committees and um, I, I didn't do any negotiating, so I had the votes when I went to bed the night before the election, and I lost by two votes the next morning from people who were promised committee chairs. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lesson. Mm-hmm. Leadership elections are give and take, and so then um, uh, I served a few more years, not two more years, and then I moved on to the Senate in the year 2000, when uh, which would have been the first year 2001. That's when you started lobbying. Mm-hmm. And that was my first year in the Kansas Senate. I'll be darned. So I have to ask the House in 91, was it uh, you know, the, the stereotype of the smoky backroom deal? Could you still smoke on the House floor in 1991? You could not only smoke, you could drink. <laughs> <laughs> so, it well, was a smoky place. Which is actually a perfect and, segue. The next thing I was going to ask you is what's the difference between serving in the House and the Senate? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> Smoking and drinking on the and floor. And we've gone a long way towards transparency. There was a time where if you wanted a bill, you walked into that legislator's office and you laid a campaign check on their desk. Said, hey, you going to help me with this bill? And you laid a campaign check on the desk. So we have gone through all kinds of ethics reform since the 90s, um, both at the state level and the federal level. And um, 
yes, you could do a lot of backroom deals. We didn't have the media back then. You know, we had newspapers, mm-hmm. and even they would come out with news late. I mean, news didn't travel fast. And, um, yeah, there were all kinds of backroom deals cut back then. And um, things just weren't transparent. You know, you couldn't tell who was taking somebody out to dinner and whining and dining them. Now it's all reported. Um, And we had a lot of late night sessions. I remember many, many nights where we'd be up till the middle of the night hashing through a bill and going through amendments. It was hard uh, when I was first um, elected to get a recorded vote on amendment, you know, because it took a lot of hands. And if you were in with the leadership, you would you would deceive people by not allowing an amendment to be recorded. So the first thing we did when I was in the House is change the rules. Once we got a team together and we said, look, we're going to record our votes and we're going to let people know back home how people are are voting. Mm -hmm. So that was a big change. But then came um, ethics reform on campaign finance and uh, we banned alcohol, I think, during those first and cigarettes. Yeah. Probably the first four years I was elected. I was going to say that whole transition, you really had to have hit the tail end of that time because you came in in 91. I came mm-hmm. in in 01 and uh, I came in. I started working in the environment in 01. And man, by the time I got there, no tobacco, no alcohol, no no checks on desks. And we've had to report every penny since. And beyond that, our votes on bills are recorded. Uh huh. Yeah. And it used to be that. You couldn't get anything recorded. Yeah. Well, you must Except have. Except for the final vote. You must have really hit the, the tail end of that era. Oh, uh, yes. It was yeah. a very different era. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's been healthy. It's been good. I mean, transparency is very healthy. As yeah. you can see, the way we communicate today with um, Facebook and Twitter and social media, th- information flies around quickly. Mm-hmm. It can get distorted. You have to check it. But um, it's a whole all information is gained in so many ways, and it's it's very different. A- accountability is absolutely necessary if you're in public office. Well, outside of of the changes, you know, in the ethics and sort of the culture, I want to come back again to what is what would you say the differences are between serving in the House and the Senate? Because we didn't even get really to the end of your resume, mm-hmm. which is now Senate President and first female Senate President in the state of Kansas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, how has it changed switching from the House side to the Senate side? Well, you know? it, uh, a lot of people who go to the Senate first serve to term in the House. So we are uh, typically older mm-hmm. in age because many of us have done some time in the House. And it's a smaller group. You know, in the House, we have 125 members. In the Senate, we only have 40. And in the Senate, uh, we're very deliberative. Um, We take things very seriously. We're the backstop, okay? Um, We've been there a while. We've seen consequences from bad legislation. So we're very deliberately deliberative. We're very committed to the committee process. We're very... um, we really want to give bills a thorough review, proponents and opponents, before we get somewhere. So um, we just are more um, the backstop. Mm-hmm. The House comes up with great ideas, new innovative ideas, 
and then we roll them around a while and clean them up before they're out on the floor. It's it's a different temperament, a different way of analyzing. Um, we're not big partiers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not quite like the house. Oh yeah, the house. Yeah, the house is just a little more rambunctious and young, and they're having right. fun. And let's fix this. <laughs> let's do it quick. And and we look at all sides. You know, one thing I've noticed about the Senate too, just the fact that it's a four-year term instead of a two-year term. It's always harder to do anything controversial in an election year when mm-hmm. folks are going to have to run, mm-hmm. and the Senate has a little more grace period in that regard to tackle those issues because mm-hmm. you're not up for re-election every other year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so we'll take more, on tough issues. Yeah, it creates a little more room to move, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. sometimes on those things. Well, that is, uh, that is interesting. What would you say is the... Uh, we've talked about the change in, in the ethics and the transparency and the smoking and the drinking and everything. But outside of that, how would you say politics has changed the most from 1991 to 2019? Whether it's running for office or fundraising or the media or the temperament, whatever it may be, what, what are the biggest changes you've seen? Oh, my goodness. It's, it's very it's a very different world because of social media. And um, if you make a blunder, if you say something stupid, mm-hmm. it's out there immediately and everyone can laugh. And it's out there forever. And it's out there forever. So um, you have to be a very strong person to run for office because people are going to look at your background. Um, they're... You know, they want to know about your taxes. They want to know about your personal life. They dig, dig, dig. And, um, you know, you can't hide anything. You have to be willing to be very open to the public. And, you know, it's hard for me even sometimes to run to the grocery store real quick to pick up a few things while I'm cooking dinner because I always get stopped. So um, your life just becomes much more public. And, okay you can you can walk around all haughty and think hey i'm an important person but but that you know being that public has its downside mm-hmm. and um and as you mentioned it's so much more public now because everything is you know the digital media everything's so accessible 1991 mm-hmm. a lot of folks even if they knew who the senator was probably didn't have a clue what you looked like oh uh, no or your representative and now of course everybody has a facebook page et cetera, et cetera. Sure. the w- you were already sacrificing anonymity anonymity when you would run for office in prior times but today you're losing your anonymity completely. Totally. Yeah. And your family does too. I mean, mm-hmm. your family makes a big sacrifice, you know, especially if you're raising teenagers. I remember telling my kids, you know what? You go out, you need a ride home, you call me, or else I guarantee you, you'll be on the front page of this paper. <laughs> your friends won't be, but you will be. Right. So, I mean, you, it, it's a sacrifice for the entire family. And, um, You have to be prepared and and willing um, to be attacked. You've got yeah. to have broad shoulders, and you have to know what you believe. You have to you you have to feel strongly about your belief system, 
and know that you're promoting a better life for everyone. You have to feel strong about it. You have to um, you have to know that the greater cause is more important than the you know attack you might yeah. get going out at a restaurant. So this is a total change of subject, but okay. l- listeners probably may have just heard in the background where it's officially noon here at the uh, Wagle House. What is? Uh, the grandfather clock. I haven't heard one of those in a home in so long. That is such a cool, warm, nostalgic sound. Oh, we love it. Yeah. I sleep better with it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my Yeah. I, I just haven't heard one in a home in so long. It really struck me when it went off. That is just, yeah, that's a cool nostalgic sort of welcoming old school sound right yeah very cool anyway i got us off subject for a minute okay uh but no it has changed a lot and you talk about the sacrifices made um one thing that most folks i think don't think about i wouldn't say they're couldn't understand it they just don't think about it much is not only do you folks have to be up there from January through May or whatever, but my gosh, even when you're here out of session and on the weekends, like you said, you can't go to the grocery store without getting stopped. And there's just a thousand organization and events that want a piece of your time all the time. Look what you're doing right now. I mm-hmm. mean, you're, you're home. You're not at the office in Topeka, but here I am chewing up an hour and a half of your day. And that, and that happens over and over and over and over again for you folks. You know, it's just a bigger commitment than people can imagine. It's a huge commitment, but you you make it work with your family life. Thankfully, it's flexible. Yeah. And thank you for coming in at a yeah. time when we could sit down. And yeah, you drove a long way to get here, so uh, I right. appreciate that. No hill for a climber. Okay. Uh, I love Wichita, and, and uh, full disclosure, uh, while I didn't get to see Brenda while I was here, I, I do my my best to support the local Brenda Landwehr uh, uh, economic development uh, sector of cigars. So, oh, wow. Yeah, I was able to <laughs> well, stop. Well, you have a lot of clients in this <laughs> community, too. So, I mean, you can make several stops before you go back. We do. That's yeah. right. I yeah. actually had a, a client board meeting and dinner last night and then uh, uh, took my laptop to Humidor West and left a little change in the local economy here and had All one right. of your fine Wichita cigars and, uh, yeah came over this morning but anyway it uh it is a big time commitment and and folks don't realize that but it's it is one of the reasons that it's difficult to get people to run no question about it it's just a massive massive time commitment well let's talk about the senate a little bit and specifically the role of senate president you know we mentioned earlier first female to fill that role in kansas and you're in your fifth session as senate president no uh, uh Seventh. Seventh. Yep. Second oh, term. Yeah. I'm, I'm off Second by, term. A, yeah. by a You're biennial. thinking house. Yeah, okay. I am. <laughs> Seventh session uh-huh. as Senate president. So after all that experience, talk about some of the things that have been the most rewarding about being in that role and some of the things that are the most challenging about that role. Because uh, kind of like running for office in general, being in a leadership position like that is, is more than the average bear realizes to deal with. You know, I have a lot of people come to me and say, you're Senate president. You have to pass this bill. People do what you say. And and I kind of laugh when they tell me that. And I say, you have no idea how independent each of my colleagues are. And they (laughs) all come from different professions. They come from different geographic areas of the state. Um, 
they have different experiences in their life, and and they may feel differently than I do. Mm-hmm. They'll be a Republican, and thankfully we have a very strong um, Republican caucus. But um, that doesn't mean that I can control their vote. Yeah. Now I can help guide things. So, um, uh, and there's times when um, I can protect my colleagues too. Mm-hmm. Um, from bills that are harmful or um, bills that they they think does one thing and and actually the language has a different effect. So um, my goal is to keep Republicans elected. Um, I believe that's good for business, good for families. Uh, it means long-term, lower taxes, less government, um, because Democrats just tend to believe in bigger government and more regulation. So for me, I'm here to make Kansas a better place for my kids, for my grandkids. And so to help steer that process in that direction is my major role. And in the end, in Kansas, we aren't a year-long session like Congress. We have a deadline. We have to pass a budget. And we have to deal with the most pressing issues that are before us. And in the end... As you've seen, Scott, so many times uh, during that those last two weeks of sessions, it's kind of a fallout period. You have legislators who have been working all session on a bill, and something happens, and the major- they lose the majority. The bill doesn't pass, and you see tears. You see emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't get my way. And always the final bills that are passed are always a compromise. Uh be, and no one person ever gets their way in in this process, and that's a healthy thing. You know, we don't want a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Um, so my goal has been make sure that those bills make Kansas a better place to live, and they make it better for my children and my grandchildren. And the bills aren't always exactly the way I want them, but if if it makes Kansas a better place with that bill and without it, then I'm voting for it. Yeah. And it's a compromise. And so to help other people compromise, that's the biggest challenge. Because maybe their two sentences are left out of that bill. Or maybe that budget doesn't have something in it for their city that their city wanted. And you have to bring, the, the biggest challenge is bringing everybody together to get a majority of votes to improve the common good for all Kansans and help them do the right thing. So... It's very challenging because I can't force a vote from anyone, Mm -hmm. but I can help people see the greater good. And actually, I have a, you know, all seven years I've been elected, I have a great Republican caucus. And they're great to work with. They're dedicated to their jobs. Um, They have their own causes. They have things that they're representing in their district. But they're truly, as you know, they're very dedicated, caring people. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, this is an editorial comment uh, of my own. These are just my own opinions. But one of the biggest disconnects, I think, between the public and their perception of politics and their local elected officials and what really is effective for Kansas is this. The legislators often that will, you know, slam their hand down on the table and say, 
my constituents deserve XYZ and I'm not supporting a bill without it and they take a more theatrical stand and they're very dramatic about I won't compromise I represent my district they sent me here and that sounds great and I think a lot of voters eat it up but in reality as you and I both know those people are those legislators are largely ineffective Mm -hmm. because they won't compromise because they won't work uh, with other legislators of both parties they're ineffective and so the soundbite is great back home you know that indignation and I won't budge and I represent you and uh, but in reality things don't work if folks aren't willing uh, to and so some of the folks and you go through this in a leadership position every day some of the folks that take the most criticism often are the ones that are really putting the puzzle pieces together and getting something functional done. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah. And and truthfully, ultimately, when you have people that are very staunch, that don't know how to get along with other people to get their bill passed and to, to advocate for others, they truthfully don't last long in the process. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do, as you and I have seen, you know, we have people who were elected one or two sessions and it's over. I, I think they they do want to elect, most Kansans want to elect someone who has the ability to communicate with others, sway others, work with them, and find solutions. Mm-hmm. I think so too. So. Well, one more question on the on the political side or your role in the legislature as we get close to wrapping up here. There have been a lot of things that you have worked on over the course of your career that have gotten a lot of press. They've been very prominent issues. But tell us a story about something that you've had the opportunity to work on and affect some change that was not in the public eye that's one of your proudest legacies that you leave behind, something that didn't make the newspaper, but it really impacted the lives of some group of people that you've been able to work on and accomplish something positive. Well, there's some bills that I've passed that didn't get um, high profile. I remember years ago when the physicians didn't want naturopaths to practice in Kansas. They felt like they would be the best health care provider. And um, naturopaths, they didn't want to take on the role of a physician, but they wanted to help educate people on um, things they can do with nutrition mm-hmm. to help improve their overall health. And there was a big battle in the state of Kansas on whether or not we would allow naturopaths to be licensed and practiced. And they weren't allowed to practice in Kansas. And so I remember taking on the establishment and saying, no, uh, let them practice in Kansas. And um, I passed a bill against the will of a very powerful group because it was the right thing to do. And um, I'm sure there's a number of bills that I've done against the establishment Um, and just because, in my mind, um, we need to make Kansas better, give people options when they're facing challenges. And um, I'd say that, along with the things I do behind the scenes to help people work together and uh, to bring unity to my caucus and to help people develop personal relationships with each other Mm -hmm. so that someone from Johnson County can understand uh, the farmer out west and what the needs are 
of Western Kansas compared to the very different needs of the suburbs in Johnson County, helping people work together, that doesn't get in the papers, helping, helping them to get to know each other, know the challenges in those different districts, helping people relate and the things you do socially um, to help pull a caucus together, that's all important. So for sure, one of the things I have to do. Yeah. And the things that definitely people don't see, you know, the newspapers don't, don't feature that understandably. So, right. right. Because I mean, we're in Topeka 90 days and, and not everyone even connects during those 90 days. And, you know, the commerce committee may be very suburban as compared to the ag committee, which tends to be very rural. And so, um, Helping people network and get to know each other and get to know the different districts is is very important. And of course, um, in your role mm-hmm. as a lobbyist, you help us do that too. You know, you've taken me into facilities here in my community and across the state to hear from people you represent. So it all comes down to communication, listening, and experiencing uh, another person's challenge and um, what their work environment is and what they need in legislation. That's what it's all about, which is how you help us over there at BHL, too. Well, kind of you to say so. We certainly certainly try. That's what we're here for. And it is such a critical part of the process that folks don't know is just information gathering, getting the perspective and the vantage point of the other folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's everything. Well, you have been incredibly gracious with your time today. Um, we like to wrap up podcasts. We call them the lightning questions. Okay. Uh, and they're the easier ones because we'll take you away from politics and policy and, and all of that. These are, uh, these are Susan Wagle specific questions. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite vacation or your favorite destination uh, from your travels over your years? Well, okay. Can and I have get, two? I was just going to say, you don't have to limit <laughs> it to one. If you've got two or three, you go we, right ahead. We love the, we love, uh, the Florida panhandle mm-hmm. um, during certain seasons, and we love Colorado during ski season. Mm-hmm. So uh kind of depends on the sport and the time of year. Yes, it does. Two excellent choices. Mm-hmm. Um, name a legislator, or two or three if you have them, and... Uh, this is a nonpartisan question, so either party, whoever. This is something, and what made me think of the question, something that I always admire in legislators. It's just a skill some people have more than others. Name a legislator or two or three that you have worked with in your career that had a real talent for taking complex legislation and describing it in layperson's terms uh, to be effective at the committee level or on the floor or whatever it may be? You know, um, I would have to say uh, my chairs, like a Dan Kirshen. Mm-hmm. He's an, he, uh, he has a farm. He's had livestock. He raises crops. He's been very active in Farm Bureau. So when he gets up and talks about rural issues, he's totally respected Mm -hmm. and he can speak in a way that we can understand and I've had a lot of legislators that way I can say that um, my minority leader in the Senate Tony Hensley we've been friends for a long time 
and uh, we talk regularly. And, you know, I can run to his office, he can run to mine, and we both have open doors. And we respect the fact that we have different perspectives, Mm -hmm. but we're friends. And so he had a health challenge this last session. Um, And he missed a few days. And, you know, I was over there making sure he was okay. And then I missed a few days because my daughter was in the hospital battling multiple myeloma. And so we're very close personally, and we respect each other's positions, but we get along. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. He does have a gift for taking some pretty complex legislation, and he can distill it down to the the everyman description. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm pretty effectively yeah mm-hmm. anybody else you want to add to the list before we move on oh my goodness i i have some wonderful people i've worked with um i can say in the house um i worked uh with tim challenger schallenberger and uh he became a speaker after being one of the rebels in the house and helping change the rules and helping bring transparency and in that case He took on his own colleagues and said, we need to fix this. We need more transparency. Our rules, our our votes need to be recorded in in, uh, the journal. And even though he was considered a rebel, Mm -hmm. uh, he became a speaker. Mm -hmm. So people who bring about good, positive change and change the system for the better, you know, even though they can be looked down on when they're fixing things, eventually... In this process, they rise up. Yeah. And the, the guerrilla warrior becomes the leader. Oh, absolutely, because yeah. they solve some problems. Yeah. Well, one last question um, without asking you, you know, when it is in terms of the date, uh, what would be the defining national moment of your childhood? What is the memory of national importance like for... Um, you know, the younger generations, it might be the Challenger or Columbine or something like that. 9-11, obviously. What, what, and again, doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be one, one or two or three. Defining moments from your, you know, age one through 20 mm. years of national significance. I, 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 I remember well uh, when President Kennedy was shot and uh-huh. I was in the classroom, I was in the fifth grade and I could tell something was wrong. All of us could tell something wrong. The teacher was called out of the classroom, and when she came back, she looked shook, and she had tears in her eyes, and she told us the president was shot. And, of course, at the time, we didn't know he had died yet, and and uh, it jolted everyone in the classroom. We were very young, but we became very quiet because we realized that was like an attack on our country. And then you go uh, to 9-11, the attack in New York on the Twin Towers. I remember um, my son was very, very sick, and they were trying to figure out what was wrong with him, and he couldn't walk. And as it turned out, and, and and we had just taken a test, and it was supposed to go on an airplane to California to see if he had some rare tick disease. He had been at a camp, and um the plane couldn't get to California for the test because all the planes were grounded because the towers had been struck. Wow. And um, I remember turning on the television, and he was on the couch. He was having, he was very sick. And we watched that 
over and over again. We became very depressed. His test never got off. A couple of weeks later, he was diagnosed with leukemia. But I'll never forget his school teacher coming over to our house and she's in to check on him. And she saw that television on and she jolted me. She said, turn the television off, Susan. You and Paul need to focus on something else. And this is just too depressing. <laughs> so she, you know, I realized I needed to have a better attitude to help my son until we figured out what was wrong. And um, we needed to focus on good things yeah. rather than the attack on our country. And um, boy, I'm, I'm so glad she came over to visit us. What a personal impact, though, 9-11 and the, you know, the travel restrictions that came about. And what a personal impact that is to have a child that needed to go somewhere, you know, for critical tests. And now you're locked down because of 9-11. That's wild. And we had no idea how long before they'd unground those planes. But um, yeah. um, I was very thankful that uh, she made us turn off the television yeah. and take a break. Well, speaking of taking a break, um, we've already taken up more of your time than we had actually asked for on the schedule. So thanks again for making time to sit down and do this. It's oh, been I appreciate fun. it, Scott. It's, yeah. it's been fun. It has. We've shared some good memories. Yeah, and, and only the appropriate ones, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for making time. Um, Kansas Senate President Susan Wagle, our guest today on the BHL podcast. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. And Susan, thank you for having us. Oh, thank you much, Scott. You bet. We'll catch you all again on the next edition of the BHL podcast. <laughs>